first scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 58. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then saying that it is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor is in the Lord and is not in vain. The second reading is from John 20, 19 to 21. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed with what, when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Uh, I'm Greg, for those of you who don't know me. And, um, yeah, and, and, well, part of it, I'm Greg, but I'm also uh, Jeff Moore's son-in-law. So that was my father-in-law who uh, almost died yesterday from a heart attack. So, uh. I know my and the, me and the Moore family are very thankful for life uh, today and um, uh, very aware too of the sting of death and, and um, the realities of living in this, this uh, liminal place uh, between the resurrection of Jesus uh, and um, the new creation. So uh, anyway. I'm just, I guess I'm more telling you, well, one, I also want to, as Sam said, uh, those of you who know them, just if you want to send some messages, perhaps send it to Scott or to Monica, uh, and they'll give it to Jeff and Peggy, uh, just so they're not overwhelmed with things. Um, but I also wanted to say that because uh, I'm, that's where I am <laughs> on this Easter day, coming to celebrate life, I'm... Um, uh, shaking with awareness of uh, the, how, with the realities of loss. And um, yeah, we all, this is one thing that's beautiful, is that God invites us to come as we are. And I think it's important, especially for someone standing up here, never to, to fake or to pretend. So I'm just letting you where I am, know where I am. But uh, yeah. Well, let's actually, let's, uh, I could use it. Let's pause for a second. God, we just, uh, again, we want to lift up uh, Jeff to you. And thank you for, again, the medical help that he received. 
Um, we also are all, uh, we all have places of, of loss, of near death and of through death. And we come to you this morning to celebrate Easter, this wonderful day of resurrection, uh, carrying and living in this space and awareness. And so we just want to bring all of this to you. And we ask Jesus that uh, if, if your Holy Spirit has something for us this morning, we do ask that you would uh, lift up our hearts and, and help us to see uh, the beauty of who you are and the life that you offer uh, to us in the here and the now. Amen. So as you are probably aware, today is the day of the church year where we especially focus on gather to celebrate Jesus. Jesus who was fully God that took on the flesh of our humanity to live with us. To show us who God is and God's great love for all people and all of creation. So that we could celebrate bunnies and chocolate eggs and pastel colors. Right? That's why he came. Anyway, obviously that was a joke. This weekend, though, we do come to remember how Jesus was the eternal creator God, humbled himself to become human. And how he humbled himself even more to die on a cross in this great act of sacrifice. Taking on himself all of the violence and the hatred and the pain and the sorrow of the world. Carrying it, that weight, upon his own body for the sake of the cosmos. To defeat the strongholds of death, decay, and destruction. But the story, as we know, didn't end there. On the third day after Jesus was put to death on a cross and was buried in a tomb, God raised him to life again. Jesus, who was crucified, was resurrected. Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. But let's be honest... Think about that, what I just said. It's a pretty weird story, right? Like, let, let's be honest. I mean, some of us have heard it so many times or for so long, we've forgotten that just how hard this is to fathom, how mysterious and quite frankly, bizarre this story is. The God of creation, well, not only the God of creation, but part of the God of creation, because the God of creation is actually a relational community a one God, but three of, that we in our human finite minds can only identify in terms of Father, Son, and Spirit. This person of relational communal God that we know as Son became human, performed miracles, taught deep wisdom, served like a slave, the God of creation served like a slave, and died and rose again. I mean, it's pretty weird. Like, like let's be honest, this is a strange story. But at the same time, it is also the least weird and strange story that there is. For in this story we find the beauty and majesty and love and sacrifice is interwoven in a way that touches upon every facet of the human experience and of the created order. That somehow beyond all human capacity, all human wisdom and reason, there is a depth and there is a wisdom and truth that somehow pushes at our borders of understanding. That when we open our hearts to it, it touches something deep within us that causes us to say, well, can it be? Wouldn't this be wonderful if the God of creation actually loved us like that? 
Because God does love us like that. It is a weird story, but one of wonder and mystery. Now, for the next few months here at Spring, uh, you are going to be spending Sundays sitting in some of these mysteries of God that are full of wonder and awe. And I say you are going to because today is my last Sunday before I go on a four-month sabbatical. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to, you know, catch up. And I will deeply miss um, being with you all as I do love you and I am thankful for you and thankful for your grace that you show to your pastors to give us a sabbatical. And uh, we don't take that for granted. We're deeply thankful. Now today as we celebrate this resurrection of Jesus, there's another wonderful mystery and that also can seem weird and strange, especially um, if you either hear it for the first time or you rethink about it, uh, try to stepping out of having heard it so many times. I felt like this is what God was leading uh, me to have us reflect upon today. And it is the beginning of what Shannon read for us. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. One of the greatest hopes in the Christian faith is that there will be a time when God restores all things. When God ushers in a new creation of heaven and earth, where there is no pain or sorrow, but where everything exists in perfect harmony and well-being. Well, the, where the created order is made new in perfect physicality and spirituality and wholeness of perfection. When everyone in Christ is raised from the sleep of death and is changed, resurrected into glorious bodies that live together in this beautiful eternity of intimacy, of love, with God, with each other, and with all of creation. And when we are all raised to this new resurrected life, I am going to have chiseled abs and high-performance pectoral muscles. <laughs> I will have the body of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or perhaps Chris Hemsworth as Thor in the Avengers movies. Well, not Thor in Endgame, but Thor in the other <laughs> movies. For those of you who don't know, he like put on a lot of weight in that movie. But you're going to pick up that I'm obviously joking anyway. But. Or perhaps I'll have a body like Alex Rodriguez or Lance Armstrong, just, you know, more organic and less chemically processed version. Now, obviously, I'm just kidding, but really, am I? Like, let's be honest, and I don't, won't ask for a show of hands here, but for those of us who have thought about what our resurrected bodies might be like, do you picture yourself as you currently are? Or do you picture yourself as perhaps something more ideal? Improvements on the aspects of your body that you, you don't like. You know, a more Instagram filtered version of yourself. Now for those of you here who don't know what Instagram filters are, it's kind of like a previous generation's version of candlelight. You know, everything looks better with soft edges and no hard lines. When we think of God's healing of all things in this new heaven and earth and our resurrected bodies, we picture a perfect ideal. 
But our idea of perfect, ideal body is actually based not on anything that God says, but completely on our cultural norms. We are, we're, our ideal is based on what we've been trained to see as beautiful and as ideal. In fact, I believe Jesus' resurrection teaches us something very different than our cultural ideals of a perfect body. The Bible tells us that in Jesus' dying, he defeated the power of death and decay. And that God raised him up from the dead. And in this victory over death, Jesus was, as the scriptures say, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. In his death and resurrection, he paved the way through death and into life as this firstborn among the dead. His resurrected body is the first to rise in perfection. This first truly whole and healed and eternal, sorry, the first truly whole and healed and eternally physical being in all of eternity. Jesus' resurrected body, like ours, is an eternal weight of glory. C.S. Lewis describes uh, resurrected bodies as more, as this is his, how he's picturing it, as more solid more real, more substantive than our present bodies. Uh, Biblical scholar N.T. Wright describes it this way. This new body will be immortal. That is, it will have passed beyond death, no longer being subject to sickness, injury, decay, and death itself. None of these destructive forces will have any power over the new body, That indeed may be one of the ways understanding the strangeness of the risen body of Jesus. And by that, he's referring to the fact that Jesus would appear in rooms somehow. He was physical. They could touch him. He would eat food, but yet he could somehow just kind of appear through walls. The strangeness of the risen body of Jesus. The disciples were looking at the first and so far the only piece of incorruptible physicality. I love that incorruptible physicality. So picture Jesus, the first piece of incorruptible physicality resurrected in eternal perfection in the fullness of glory and he appears to his disciples and as Shannon read for us, he appears to the disciples. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Then a week later, Jesus appears to them again, just a little later in the same book. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas, the poor guy wasn't there the first time Jesus showed up. Thomas was there with him. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Why? 
Well, remember how a couple days before Jesus was nailed to a cross with nails that were probably somewhere around the size of a railway spike that were put through his hands and his feet. And after he died, they had stabbed him with a spear in his side to make sure that he was dead. And here, when Jesus rose from the dead, in perfect glory of incorruptible physicality, he still had scars. This is the ideal body. (laughs) He still had scars. In the original ancient Greek, that's the language that this, uh, the part of the Bible is written in. It is actually hard to know if they're scars, like when we picture scar tissue, or if they were actually still kind of open wounds. But either way, they would have, been, they would have not been little dots on his hands. They would have been very large. Either large holes or at least large swaths of scar tissue. It is not a moot point. That means it's not an irrelevant point or insignificant. That Jesus, in his glorified body, no longer subject to sickness or decay, in an incorruptible, resurrected body that would exist into eternity, raised in perfection, he had a lot of visible and tangible scar tissue. Unlike Instagram filters and candlelight dinners, the beauty and glory of the resurrected Son of God was scars and all. The hard lines and rough edges were not smoothed out, but his scars remained. The eternal God, creator of the universe, the source and the epitome of true beauty, wears scars of his profoundest suffering and sacrifice into eternity. You wouldn't know it by the sanitized crosses that we hang in our churches and wear on our necks. But the cross is an ugly and brutal and violent, humiliating place of suffering. But when Jesus rises from the dead, when he destroys the power of death, and it initiates in his body the first fruits of uncorruptible beauty and wholeness, wounds from this humiliating suffering are not erased, but they are glorified. And they forever proclaim the healing of the world. An author named Brian Brock, he writes this. This is a crucial admission because the scars that remain are ones that were made at the most difficult and painful part of Jesus' life. The marks of his disabling experience on the cross are not cleansed from his resurrected body, but they are transfigured and made glorious. Brian Brock, he is a theologian, which means that he gets to think about God and write about God for a living. He is the father of a nonverbal son with Down syndrome. His son has developmental delays. He has impairments in cognitive functioning. He has the physical attributes of Down syndrome with short stature, upward slanting eyes, and flattened nasal bridge. And Brian, as a father of a child with Down syndrome, he knows intimately the struggles and the suffering of disability. Not just the physical and the emotional and the mental. He actually says those ones are easier to deal with. But the social realities are absolutely brutal and painful. Our society is conditioned to look down on those with disabilities. To catch our eye and to turn and to look 
and to gaze wonderingly. The disabled are often seen through lens of burden. What burden do they bring on society? Costs of health care and support systems, their ability or their lack thereof to be productive, which really just means that if they are, they're able and add to the economy, as if their lives are no more than a drain on the system. I mean, this is how we measure things, right? Our, our whole immigrant, immigrant status in Canada is based on production. Christians, unfortunately, are no different in this. And many traditions are, some traditions are worse than others. Christians who look at a person with a disability or an illness and wonders, perhaps they didn't have enough faith to be healed. Or, I wonder what the sin behind this is. Did they sin? Did their parents sin? These frankly disgusting thoughts do not come from the heart of God, but from humans' shallow, misconceived ideas of who God is. Misconceived ideas of what is beautiful and what constitutes the image of God and what it means that we are all made in the image of God. In his reflecting on disability through the lens of Scripture and through Jesus' resurrection, where Jesus' physical wounds of suffering were not erased in the resurrection but were glorified, Brock finds peace. Because if his son in the resurrection was no longer to have Down syndrome, his son would be unrecognizable. Not just visibly, but his personality. Everything of who he is is shaped and formed through the reality of life as a man with Down syndrome. If that were totally washed away, erased as if it was just a result of sin, his son would no longer be his son. In God's beautiful resurrection, his son would cease to exist and be replaced by some other complete stranger who had actually never lived. And so for Brian Brock, his hope is that in the resurrection, his son will be healed and freed from all of the pains and the sorrows, many of which are more cultural and societal than physical, but that his son will actually be his son the way that God created him with his personality, but now without sin. In the resurrection, what needs to be healed will be healed. What is good will remain and be even gooder, for lack of a non-English word. And I think Brock is on to something. He says, perhaps Christians tend to have an inability to distinguish between what needs to be healed and what is good. What needs to be healed will be healed, but what is good will remain and will be even gooder. If Jesus' scars are not erased, then what scars of our lives, physical or otherwise, may actually remain with us into the resurrection? No longer painful. No longer with shame. If Jesus' scars that remain are ones that were made at the most difficult and painful part of his life, but transfigured and made glorious for the healing of the world, what of our scars can be made glorious? Can God point, what of our scars can point to God's presence in our lives? Point to places where we were strengthened through affliction, 
What scars do we have in our lives that can be a place of healing to others? Like Jesus' scars were the healing of the world. For many of us, our scars, physical, emotional, whatever, they have significant place in shaping who we are. Sometimes they shape us in very negative ways, and I believe that God wants to help us to heal from them, not just in the resurrection, but beginning now. But by the grace of God, even our hardships and trials have had a part in shaping who we are into good ways too. Strength through perseverance, hope through desperation, life through death. Now I want to make sure that one thing is clear. I do not believe, and you can disagree, I mean you can disagree with me on everything I'm saying. I'm fine with that. But I do not believe that God causes our suffering. I do not think the terrible things that happen in the world are willful acts of God, as if God is sitting up there going, I'll give you cancer, oh, it's time for Jeff Moore to have another heart attack, and I'll kill all these children in a famine this week. <laughs> I personally find that kind of view of God very, it offends me, but I know that there are lots of Christian traditions that do think that, but I do not believe for a moment that God causes suffering. I want to introduce you to another author, Stephanie Tate. She's the author of a book called The View from Rock Bottom, Discovering God's Embrace in Our Pain. She is a survivor of childhood abuse and trauma, for which she still suffers CPTSD. She has a myriad of health issues and disabilities and autoimmune disorders stemming from 14 years of undiagnosed Lyme's disease. And she is a mother of a son who is on the autism spectrum. And she knows the challenges of suffering and disability very well. She speaks about the difference between reason and purpose. And how dangerous it is when we say things like, that terrible thing that just happened, all those children that are dying today from famine, there's a reason for it. God has a, a reason for it. Instead of looking back, looking for a reason for something which is past tense, to find what God is up to, it is better to think in terms of purpose rather than reason, Stephanie Tate says. Through the lens of her own extreme suffering, Tate says there is purpose in our pain. That doesn't mean there is a good reason for it. Do, do you hear the subtle difference? There is purpose and can be purpose in pain, but it doesn't mean there was a good reason for it. Finding purpose is not to say, I'm really glad this terrible thing happened. It must have been God's will that inflicted it on me. But that a way can be found to repurpose things that were intended for harm into tools. And as Stephanie Tate says, tools for growth, tools for building, tools to help community to help others going through the same suffering. And this is a grace of God. When your life is blasted to pieces, when violence and disease and brokenness of the world mars you and wounds you, Jesus is there on the cross with you. Jesus goes with you into the deaths that you experience in that wounding, buried with you in that tomb of pain and sorrow. He did not put you there, but he accompanies you. No, more than accompanies you, his very life and being is bearing that pain with you. 
more than anything, Jesus longs to lift you out of that tomb, raising you through death to new life. Life where there is healing, but also where the scars you bear are transformed from decay and death to glorified witnesses of God's presence and grace. One of uh, Jesus' followers named Paul, he's wrote, he wrote the part of what Shannon read for us. He wrote kind of a, a fair amount of the part of the Bible that's called the New Testament. And one of the passages that Shannon read for us is just part of a very long section where Paul talks about the resurrection. He talks about how we will be raised to life through death, where the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable, where like a seed that is buried and then becomes a new living plant. Resurrection, Paul talks about resurrection as something that is an incontinuity. So it's not consistent with what was before to what is new. In the sense that there will be freedom from pain and suffering and from death and decay. But that the resurrection is also a continuity of what was before. It isn't something completely new. It is a continuity of what was before. The life of the new plant was always there inside the seed. The incorruptible is swallowed up. But like when we eat food that's swallowed up, it actually becomes a part of the fabric of our being. All of this talk about, and all of Paul's talk, sorry, about what will one day be, what is his conclusion? Right, we like conclusions. What do we do with this kind of mysterious hope? Do we think since we're just waiting for that day, nothing really matters? So let's just sit around and go to Bible studies, which is very a good thing, but it's not the end. No, I would say quite oppositely, Jesus' resurrection and our hope to one day follow means this. Again, this is um, the part that um, Shannon read for us. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The conclusion of talking about the resurrection is dig in. What you're doing right now is not in vain. Again, N.T. Wright uh, says it this way. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, you are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. What you are doing now, your work in the Lord, is accomplishing something that will in due course be part of God's new world. As we look to the horizon, knowing that God will make, our, make glorious our work and our wounds, that gives us hope and strength so that we can live in the now. So we can stand and be firm, allow nothing to move us and to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because we know that in 
the Lord. We know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whatever our hopes and expectations, we know and can trust that what, we, that what God has planned is way better and beyond what we can ever imagine. And we know that what we do now will somehow and mysteriously make a difference in the eternal. The eternal that exists now and also the eternal in our resurrection when we are raised to new life. So let's invite God into our lives in the now. Let's welcome Jesus' presence. Let's hold hands with God, feeling the scar tissue against our palms. Knowing that by God's grace and the hope of the resurrection, the lives we live now and in scars that we incur are not in vain, but reflect the beauty and the purpose of our risen Savior who is with us in our struggle and will lead us into life everlasting. Amen. Uh, let's pray with me, please. Jesus, uh, you, everything about you is a mystery, yet if we could fully grasp it, you would not be God. You would not be eternal. And you will not be infinite. We thank you for the ways you reveal yourself to us, for the beauty of who you are and the ways that you change our understanding of what beauty is and what your image in us means. We do desperately need your spirit's presence, your spirit's strength, your spirit's hope. As we live through the struggles and the scars and the wounds of life, we ask that in you and by the work of your spirit, you would help us to see you and, and, to re, and that you would repurpose the things that wound us, that you would heal us and repurpose them for your glory in the world. Amen.